0: great time. And uh, it seems like, I think the last time I was scheduled to preach here, I ended up in the hospital, which was kind of ironic because I'd been filling in for Pastor Daniel, who'd been in the hospital. So we were both kind of pathetic at that point. But uh, God has helped us both, and uh, we're both feeling a lot better, Dan, Pastor Daniel and myself. I'm very glad for that, and thank you for praying for me. And and I'm glad I didn't have to bail out on you today. It's really a pleasure to worship with you. I'm going to uh, take a passage that uh, uh, no doubt is familiar to many of you, um, but as with many passages that are familiar in God's Word, there's a reason they're familiar, because we can't hear them too often, and I think it's always good to hear them again. I'll be considering the fourth beatitude from Matthew chapter 5, which has to do with hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Uh, Just a couple of brief comments of context before I read the passage. Uh, It's been said that the first three Beatitudes, which concern uh, poverty of spirit, uh, mourning, and meekness, uh, uh, rise from a a deep spiritual need, and I think that's right. And then in in the fourth Beatitude, we come to a promise of satisfaction uh, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, Another point about context is just to remember that we shouldn't view the Beatitudes as kind of a checklist okay, I've worked on poverty of spirit, now I can go on to mourning and meekness and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. No, not at all. All of these Christian discipleship character traits are active or should be active all the time in the Christian life. So someone who's hungry and thirsting and for righteousness has not stopped being poor in spirit. Uh, Someone who is being merciful has not stopped mourning over his or her sins. You see my point. And uh, that will be important as we try to un- un- understand and unfold um, Matthew chapter 5 and, and verse, uh, verse 8. And uh, verse 6, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and this, this beatitude, as all of the beatitudes, is brief in words, but rich in meaning. And so we will need to let in the light of other scriptures to interpret what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. So here, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let us pray. We do thank you, Father, for your inspired and fallible, inerrant word. And we pray now that you would uh, speak to us, uh, unfold to us by your spirit this wonderful beatitude. Uh, motivate us by uh, your promise. Uh, fill us with the gospel. May we indeed be those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hope that a helpful way of looking at this passage is to kind of unfold it in in three parts. Uh, First, let's consider hungering and thirsting. Then, let's consider righteousness. And then, let's consider satisfaction or, or being filled. So first, hungering and thirsting. How do, you get to, how do you go about getting to know someone well? Well, I know with men, almost automatically the first question we ask is, what do you do? What's your job? What's your work? And that tells you something about a person. I asked Patsy, Is that kind of what women ask each other? And she said, no, I think more typically we ask about one another's children. How many children do you have? What are your children doing? And, uh, of course, that's also work, isn't it? Uh, Being a mom is good work, uh, but, but it is work. But I don't think you know a person well yet just when you know what they do or how they spend their time. And so we push on. And getting to know a person well, we need to know what they think, don't we? Um, what, are, what do they value? Um, what, what's their view of the world, as it were? Now we're getting to know them even better. But I still think we don't know them at their deepest part yet until we know what they desire, what they long for, what they hunger and thirst for. And in a way, only God knows that. And then the person knows that. And and we can only know it, I think, as they reveal it to us. But doesn't that summarize, really, what a disciple is? A disciple is known by what he or she does. A disciple is known by what he or she thinks. uh, And especially those, those truths that we confess. And a disciple is known by what they desire, what they hunger and thirst for. Sometimes we miss the point, I think, that people are cre- created in the image of God are beings of desire. We're not just people of action. We're not just people of thought. Though all of that is true, we are people of desire who hunger and thirst for certain things as as fallen creatures born into this world we are born with a set of desires uh, the the uh, Sermon on the Mount is, is well known for telling us about some of this. If you consider, for example, Matthew 5, verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, in our fallen hearts, there is a raging desire, uh, raging desire yes, of hatred of uh, putting our neighbor in his place and putting ourselves above him. Uh, consider also Matthew 5, verse 28, just one more example of this, how fallen creatures are beings of desire. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We are filled as fallen creatures with lustful desires as well. Paul summarizes this in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 22. It's, It's brief, but it's right to the point of describing the fallen creature as creatures of desires. He says, we're called to put off our old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The fallen person is driven and fueled by deceitful desires, says Paul. And I think it's important that we understand that. And it's interesting that then when the Lord begins to address us as converted people, as believers, as those who want to keep his covenant, he never says simply, don't hate, don't lust, Don't steal. Yes, he says all of those things, but he calls us and even gives us new desires to replace those old ones. So Christian people, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who've been born from above, are new creatures, which includes being fueled by new desires. Again, consider how the sermon speaks to some of these uh, a well-known verse, uh, Matthew 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, the disciple, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be, is to be commanded by a new master desire to seek first the kingdom of God. Think of the beautiful hymn by Timothy Dwight, I love thy kingdom Lord. That's the mark of a disciple in our hearts. Yes, it it will be imperfect. Yes, it won't come to full expression in this life, but nevertheless the seed of that desire is present in every Christian heart. Uh, Matthew 7 verse 7, another example of this. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. You see, the, the Christian is hungering and thirsting for new things, for kingdom realities, for godly things. And even as Paul had summarized for us um, what the fallen desires were, he summarizes also the desires of the new heart. Ephesians 4, verse 23, he says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If you take them just in a literal way, hungering and thirsting are fundamental desires, are they not? When we're hungry, it's pretty hard to concentrate fully on anything else, isn't it? Come on, let's be serious about that. We're at our desk or we're working around the house and we're hungry and... When's lunchtime? Can I get a snack here? I mean, you can concentrate on other things, but it's pretty hard to give yourself fully to them, right? And I think thirst is even worse. When you're thirsty, you've got to quench that thirst. I mean, uh, you can live for a while without food. What I understand, you can't live very long without water. I, m- I mentioned being in the hospital. I remember being in the ho- For some reason, when I was in the hospital, I was just in there overnight. I just had this raging thirst. And uh, the nurses were pretty good, but sometimes they forgot about me, and I just had to have more water. I was just so thirsty. You know how that is. And Jesus appeals to those very fundamental, driving desires that we have And pictures them as hunger and thirsting for righteousness. That's what he calls us to. And that's what he creates within us. Does your discipleship extend to your desires? We should fear lest our discipleship is just an outward outward thing. Coming to church... Yes, assenting to certain truths, all of which are important. And yet, does it touch our desires? What is fueling the inward person of the heart? And if we find that our desires for righteousness are not strong, we might examine the fact that maybe we have eaten too much junk food. I can hear my grandmother and my mother saying to me when I wanted a piece of candy or something like that, what would they say? You'll spoil your dinner. Uh, She wanted us to eat the good stuff. That's what Jesus wants too. And sometimes when our desires are weak for righteousness, it's because we've filled ourselves with too many other desires. And we need to pray for godly desires. Remember what the psalmist says. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for the You hear the language of desire once again. Let that be part of our prayer life. Oh, Lord, give, grant me godly desires. Grant me a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. It's so important. Well, I haven't even talked about what righteousness is, but just kind of unpacking what hungering and thirsting is and why it's important and how God works in his people to grant us a new set of desires in Christ. But Jesus says, let us hunger and thirst. Blessed are those, there's a blessedness for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does he mean by righteousness? Now, As well-taught people, which I know you are, as reformed people, which I know you are, as gospel-believing people, which I know you are, probably your first thought will be, well, obviously what he means here is that wonderful imputed righteousness that God gives us in the gospel. That's what we're to hunger and thirst for. And I would say that's a wonderful thought, but it's wrong at this point. Don't think that's the righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. Now we'll see that that's foundational to this righteousness, and there's no hope of this righteousness without that. I'll come to that in just a moment. But that's not the righteousness that the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about here. I want to argue that the righteousness that he's talking about here is the actual lived, practical righteousness of the disciples' life. Let me show you the examples and why I say that. Matthew chapter five, verse nineteen, for example, as the Lord Jesus Christ goes on in the in the Mount, and we read the, the we read the law earlier in the service. Therefore, everyone whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus, in the clearest possible way, commends to his disciples and says that you are to be marked by your obedience to the law of God, which is what righteousness is. Not to human commandments, not to human traditions, but to the law of God. Listen to um, chapter 6, verse 1. And there are several statements like this, I won't read all of them. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. I think the New King James puts that slightly differently. But the idea is, beware of practicing your righteousness before men. But be careful here, Jesus Jesus is commending practicing your righteousness. But he's saying do it in the right way. Don't practice your righteousness in the wrong way, but by all means, practice your righteousness. And really, that's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, is disciples who live in the practice of their righteousness. And I think what makes this even conclusive is at the very end of the sermon in Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You have given commandments, says the psalmist, that are to be fully obeyed. And the Lord Jesus Christ is commending to his disciples a righteousness, his commandments that are to be obeyed. And and let us think of this in, in the most basic daily matters. Let us be righteous in our business dealings. Let us be righteous in our work ethic. Let us be righteous in our truthfulness. Let us be righteous in how we treat the opposite sex. Let us be righteous in how we treat people of other races and cultures that may not be comfortable to us. In all these matters. J.C. Ryle, a great writer and preacher of another age, defined righteousness this way. He said, It's the desire above all things to be conformed to the mind of God. I think that's a great description of what righteousness is. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has a wonderful collection of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, which you're interested in digging more in, I, I highly recommend those. He put it more simply. He says, righteousness is positive holiness. That's what he had to say. Now, at this point, someone may ask, and may wonder, perhaps you're thinking in your mind, but wait a minute, Pastor. Now, aren't you kind of talking here about works righteousness now? Aren't you talking now dangerously about kind of a self-righteousness? You're talking about the law, and you're talking about obeying it, and you're talking about practicing it. Uh, No, I'm not. I'm not talking about self-righteousness. I'm not talking about a works righteousness. And, And there are two reasons why I'm not. First of all, remember the context of this beatitude and this righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It it has been stated after three profound expressions of spiritual need. Poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness. My point is this pursuit of righteousness does not rise out of pride. It rises out of the deepest humility. Uh, the old liberal way, if I can say it that, that way, in the oh, early 20th century and so on, it crops its head various times. The old, the old liberal way was, oh yes, let us practice simple Sermon on the Mount piety. Well, there's nothing simple about the piety in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and as someone has said, and perhaps many have said, and I think it's rightly said, If you're not humbled by the Sermon on the Mount, then you haven't read it. If you're not humbled by it, then you haven't really studied it. There's nothing simple about practicing the Sermon on the Mount. And therefore, we come to this hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not with a self-righteous pat on the back, but with a deep and profound humility. I like the story Spurgeon told about one of his preaching students. Spurgeon who was actually a contemporary of J.C. Ryle, and they respected each other, uh, had the same doctrine. They were were very different. Spurgeon was a Baptist. But anyway, um, Spurgeon had a college for training pastors, and he would often listen to young men preach, and then he would critique them. And he tells a story about one day uh, a young man who was going to preach a sermon went bounding up into the pulpit. It was an elevated pulpit. He probably went up three steps. And he went bounding up into the pulpit, and he got into the pulpit to preach a sermon, and he just totally messed it up. Uh, which I can relate to. And then he had his Bible in his notes, and when he left the pulpit, he kind of went down like that. And Spurgeon said to the young man, Young man, if you had entered the pulpit the way you came down from the pulpit, then you would have come down from the pulpit the way you entered the pulpit. And I think that's exactly right. Pride goes before a fall, but the beauty of humility. And that's the kind of righteousness here. That we're talking about. Not a pride self-righteousness. It's never a sense of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know I've got this. The minute we start thinking you know I have got this. We don't have it. And we've missed the point of what Jesus is teaching us. But there's a second reason why saying this approach to righteousness is not a self-righteousness, is not a works righteousness. It's because the righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount is completely surrounded and permeated by the fatherhood of God. And the fatherhood of God is not a natural gift, it's a gospel blessing. Not everyone is a child of God, as the old liberals used to teach and as humanists teach today. We only become children of God through the gospel, through the righteousness that is imputed to us by faith. Just a a couple of reminders about how sweet and precious this is, that Jesus is unfolding discipleship in terms of the fatherhood of God. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. Chapter 5, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6, verse 8, do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Chapter 7, verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The righteousness that Jesus calls us to practice is not a works righteousness because it's undergirded by the fatherhood of God and the fatherhood of God is not a natural blessing. It is a gospel blessing. And it is being adopted as God's children through the gospel. It is being justified by grace through that imputed righteousness and being adopted as a child of God that fuels our desire for the practice of righteousness, for pleasing God in that way. Calvin put it this way, the object of regeneration, that is, the purpose of being born again, (laughs) is to manifest in our lives a harmony between the righteousness of God and our practice. See, that's what God's doing in our lives. He is increasingly manifesting a harmony between His righteousness and our practice. Never perfect in this life. I say again, we will always have much reason to be meek and to mourn over our sins. Always. All the way to heaven. Nevertheless, we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness that that path might shine brighter and brighter until the full day as proverbs did well i've tried to uh, talk about hungering and thirsting and i tried to explain what i think the lord jesus christ means here by righteousness and finally let's consider satisfaction or fullness as as it's put in the beatitude um depending on the English translation you have, but, but the words mean the same thing. Again, notice how these Beatitudes are all driven by gospel promises. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. I date myself when I refer to a very popular song from my teenage years, but the band insisted over and over again, I can't get no satisfaction. And you still hear that on the, on the oldies nowadays too But, but they were basically lusts of deceit and the singer couldn't get any satisfaction what a wonderful contrast the Lord Jesus Christ promises to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness at the end of the day it will not be I can't get no satisfaction it will be they will be satisfied they will be filled we had the homily earlier from the book of Isaiah. I was reading some in Isaiah yesterday, chapter 3. And I came across this wonderful statement that the Lord gives a message to the prophet for his people. And he says this to the prophet. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them. This is not a vain quest to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Righteousness for they will be satisfied. They will be filled. The blessedness of righteousness. You know, here here is something that, again, contrasts the wisdom of the world from the wisdom of of God. I suppose the world could not think of anything less interesting, more boring, or perhaps more stupid than to pursue righteousness. Um, Why would you want to do that? Let's live. Let's live for the moment. Uh, Let's get that satisfaction if we can. The Lord Jesus Christ commends the beauty and the satisfaction of pursuing righteousness because then we are experiencing what we were created and redeemed for, to be righteous. That's what God made us for. And that's what he has redeemed us for. Again, I refer to Paul, who in several places uh, makes this very clear. Uh, again, coming back to, to Ephesians 4, and I think I want verse 24. Though I may have written down the wrong verse here. Um, right, I, I read this earlier. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the image of God? What was it to be created in the Garden of Eden in the image of God? It was to live in true righteousness before God. And to enjoy the beauty of that in a sinless way. And of course we, are long, we have long abandoned our original righteousness. And we have fallen into sin. But here's the good news. This is being restored in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ was the true, righteous Son of God who never sinned, who totally and enjoyably fulfilled all the righteousness of the law of God for our sakes, that we as his children might also enjoy that process which begins in this life of being restored to that true righteousness. Again, I say never perfect, always reason to mourn over our sins, but nevertheless... Everyone who is in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, is a new creation. What a beautiful description of sanctification is in the Shorter Catechism, number 35. And part of that definition is, sanctification, that is God's work in our lives after we're justified, heading for glory. Uh, Sanctification is a work of God's free grace in which we are restored, In the whole man after the image of God. Our whole person is being restored to what we were created and redeemed to be. And that is wonderfully satisfying. Not complete in this life, but we do have this wonderful fullness to look forward to. And I close with this. Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Can you imagine what that consummate final drink is going to taste like? He gives us rivers of living water now in the gospel. But our thirst is never fully and completely quenched in this life but someday it will be. Let's hear it again. I will give them from the spring of the water of life without payment. That's what we have to look forward to, brothers and sisters. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now we turn to uh, enjoy and to seal what uh, the word has said by turning to uh, the Lord's Supper, and as a hymn of of response to uh, the sermon and uh, preparation for the supper, let's plan to sing uh, number 455 in the red hymnal, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, and uh, let me pray before we do that. Father, we do pray that you would grant to us godly desires. We pray that you would grant us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I pray if there's anyone here or listening in who has not trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, may you give them grace by your Holy Spirit to do so this very day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 455, and can it be that I should gain?